0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories that Define Him. Please welcome John Malcolm, Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government and
1: Director of the Mee Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, On behalf of uh, the Heritage Foundation and our co-host for this event, the Federalist Society, Uh, We are very pleased that you are here today. We are here to discuss a fabulous new book uh, that was just released yesterday uh, titled, and here it is, The People's Justice, Clarence Thomas and the Constitutional Stories That Define Him, which focuses on 12 cases that serve to illuminate Justice Thomas's approach to the law, his impact on the law, and the impact that these cases had on ordinary citizens. We are joined today by the author of that book, Judge Amul Thapar. Judge Thapar is a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, where he has served since 2017 after being nominated by President Trump. Prior to that, Judge Thapar had served as a federal prosecutor, including serving as the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Kentucky and as a U.S. District Court judge for that district, having been nominated to that position by President George W. Bush. After Judge Thapar speaks, we will hear from three very distinguished lawyers in their own right who argued three of the cases that are featured in the book. And they will describe how they got involved in these cases and how they approached their Supreme Court arguments. Randy Barnett, who argued Gonzalez versus Raich, is the Patrick Hotung Hotung professor of constitutional law at Georgetown Law School. Professor Barnett is the author of 12 books himself, and well over 100 scholarly articles. Scott Bullock, who argued Kelo versus City of New London, is the president and chief counsel at the Institute for Justice, where he has been since it was founded in 1991. The Institute for Justice is a nonprofit public interest firm that fights to end abuses of government power and secure the constitutional rights of the people. Like Professor Barnett, Scott has also published dozens of articles and is a frequent media presence sharing his views on constitutional litigation. Then we will hear from Alan Gora. Alan is the Vice President for Litigation at the Institute for Free Speech, which he joined in 2021. The Institute for Free Speech promotes and defends First Amendment rights. Prior to joining the Institute for Free Speech, he was in private practice where he argued a number of important constitutional cases, including McDonald versus City of Chicago, which is featured in the book, and its predecessor case district of columbia versus heller judge the the floor is yours
2: thank you is it okay if i use the totally up to i'll, you. S- I'll switch up on you is it going to screw up with the microphones okay great well thank you very much for having me it's a it's really a treat and an honor to be here with all of you i'm going to talk just brief, very briefly about why i wrote the book i think One of the things, one of the many things we lost when we lost Justice Scalia is our evangelist for originalism. Justice Scalia served such an important role in talking often about originalism. He often said that when he started talking about originalism, everyone would think he was a bear and run from the room. Now, to me, it's the only philosophy people talk about, either the People who tout it, like myself, as the proper methodology to interpret the Constitution, or the critics who don't bring something else to the party, but rather would rather critique originalism. And with Justice Scalia's passing, the leading originalist on the court is now Clarence Thomas. Few can debate that, nor do few, and very few attack his methodology these days because they know they can't win and the book proves it the fascinating thing for me in working on the book i started with a book about originalism for ordinary people that's what i wanted meaning not only lawyers but everyone else because i thought the next step for us as justice scalia said we have an obligation to fly the flag And to me, the next step was taking it straight to the American people. And that was the goal of this book. And I think when you read the book, no matter who you are, you're gonna be surprised. Maybe it's how often originalism is actually in favor of the little guy. Maybe that'll surprise you. Maybe it's how strong a voice Clarence Thomas has, including a black voice that no one ever talks about. And maybe what will surprise you is the courage of the litigants, litigants like Suzette Kelo, who you'll hear about today from her lawyer, Scott Bullock, litigants like Angel Raish, who again, You'll hear about today from her lawyer, Randy Barnett, and litigants like Otis McDonald, who once again you'll hear about from his lawyer, Alan Gurra. These litigants and these lawyers are truly what make America great, because without them, these cases would not be there. And these litigants who just wanted a chance to fight what they viewed was wrong would not have an opportunity to do so. Because without great lawyers like these gentlemen, there is no Constitution. So each of them will give you today the inside scoop. And I couldn't have written this book without them. Extensive interviews. They reviewed my work. They were critical in each of the respective chapters. So I thank each of them. I thank you for coming today, and I look forward to a discussion about the book and the chapters therein.
0: Well, first of all, thanks, John, for having me, and thanks, Amul, for writing this book. This is a phenomenal book. You all need to read it. You'll really enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed the chapter on the Rage case, um, and I can attest to its accuracy, uh, which I assume is true of all the other chapters as well. So it's not always true of journalistic reports of, of, uh, of, what, of the cases that we've worked on. Uh, I've been asked to talk about how I became involved in the Rage litigation, And I have, I'm going to do that, then I'm going to close by sort of drawing a lesson that I learned from the RACE litigation that I think is important today. Um, I got involved because there was once upon a time I was considered the nation's leading authority on the Ninth Amendment, which all of you know because it's so important. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And I see Chuck Cooper in the audience here. Back when neither of us had gray hair, we used to, we were on the Federal Society Circuit debating uh, the Ninth Amendment uh, over and over again in front of chapters. Um, and what happened was there was a lawsuit in California involving the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative, which I will just call OCBC. Um, and the federal government wanted to put OCBC out of business. That's discussed in the book here in this chapter. And but the the trial judge in that case was Charles Breyer, who was Justice Breyer's brother, Um, and Charles Breyer, uh, Judge Breyer, asked the parties to brief the Ninth Amendment. He thought the Ninth Amendment might have something to do with the case, and so Robert Rach, who ultimately married Angel rage, making angel rage rage, um, was going around the country trying to find somebody who knew about the Ninth Amendment. And he comes to me when I was at Boston University. I remember getting the phone call from him. I was in my office. Um, and he was telling me about this case. And he asked me if I'd be willing to get involved. Well, unusually, it actually was a Ninth Amendment case. It was a federal case. It was not a state case. So it was not a 14th Amendment case. Uh, and, so, and I was you know supportive of the policies that were being uh, advanced by the lawsuits. So I said, sure, I would. And I helped them write the Ninth Amendment part of the brief that they wrote to the trial judge, who immediately or subsequently lost all interest in the Ninth Amendment, as judges always do. (laughs) Um, But uh, by this time, I was involved in the case, which was primarily a Commerce Clause challenge, with a Due Process Clause uh, Fundamental Rights challenge as well. Um, And the problem with the case was... That uh, the facts involved people going into the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative with money in their pocket and no marijuana, coming out of the Cannabis Buyers Cooperative with less money in their pocket and marijuana, which means that money and marijuana are changing hands in that building. And I don't know about you, but I know, uh, in, according to my reading of the original meaning of the word commerce, that's commerce. So commerce was happening in that building, according to the original meaning of commerce. Now, it was intrastate, wholly intrastate, which still meant that there was some basis for it, a constitutional objection. But I said that, um, and, and we, we, we took that case all the way to the Supreme Court. We actually got to the Supreme Court in that case on a theory of medical necessity, which I needn't bore you with. Um, but it was not a constitutional challenge. It was a, a, state, it was a statutory uh, basis. But the point is, is I thought we needed a case with better facts. We needed a case where there was no money and no marijuana changing hands. So as the book relates, Rob Reich, who by this time, you know, I was co-counsel with him um, in that case, came to me and said, what do you think about bringing our own lawsuit uh, involving facts that were more favorable to a Commerce Clause challenge? And he said he knew of two people who would be good plaintiffs in the case. One was Angel Rache, who he had recently married, and the other was Diane Monson, who both of whom are discussed in the book. Um, and it was a result of that that we, the three of us, her, Diane Monson's lawyer, Rob Rache, and myself, brought the lawsuit in the Northern District of California to enjoin the application of the Controlled Substances Act to our clients. Um, and that was the beginning of my new career as a constitutional lawyer, pro- formally my my legal experience was limited to trying murder trials to juries in Chicago. Um, so this was a pretty big departure uh, from that, um, uh, although I'm very pleased to have done both. Both tried jury trials, murder cases of jury trials in Chicago and argued in the US Supreme Court. So now in the short time I have left, let me draw a lesson from the case that I learned This—that that is not in the book, um, although the whole book stands for this proposition. Um, uh, Many of you have heard of legal realism, and legal realism can be sort of um, digested as um, uh, based on what the judge's political preferences are, that what the judges will do is they'll decide how they want their case to come out, and then they'll marshal whatever legal resources are necessary to justify that outcome, but the outcome is being determined by their priors. So it's all very outcome-based. Um, I, by the way, am not a very big adherent to the legal realism view. I don't think it's an accurate description about how lower court judges decide cases. I think it can be a somewhat accurate description about how Supreme Court justices sometimes decide cases, but with a twist, with a modification, which this case represents. Because when we went into this case, you would think, I'm coming out of the Ninth Circuit with a medical marijuana case representing two people who are sick and need mar- medical marijuana to survive, I win in the Ninth Circuit uh, in the district, in the Court of Appeals with the two liberal judges, the one Reagan appointee. I, lo- I don't get the vote of the Reagan appointee. I get two liberal judges. You would think going to the Supreme Court, I would have had a shot at the progressive justices on the court. And that would have been Justice Ginsburg, Justice Stevens, Justice Souter, Justice Kennedy... Um, you would have thought I had a shot at them. But I never had a shot at them. I knew I didn't have a shot at them. I mean, at some, you know, when you're arguing a case in the Supreme Court, you, you tell yourself stories about how you might get this judge, or you might get that judge, that, that vote. Uh, but you, I knew better. I knew I was never going to ch- stand a chance with them. Why not? If the legal realism story is true, um, even as I think it sort of is, why not? And that is, I think, because I think what justices do they don't decide cases based on doctrine unless you know necessarily. I don't think they consider themselves all that bound by their own doctrine. So in that sense, I think realism is right. But I do think they decide cases based on their deep-seated constitutional principles. And what separates the left side of the court from the right side of the court is a disagreement about what those principles should be. And that's the reason why I never had a shot at the left side of the court, because the left side of the court put their principal commitment to virtually unlimited federal power ahead of their compassion for the sick and the dying. And at some level, you kind of have to admire that. (laughs) However, we did get three votes. We got three votes from justices who put their principal to limited and enumerated powers ahead of whatever concerns they may have had about marijuana the Ninth Circuit, or whatever. And those were Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was at that point dying of cancer, Justice O'Connor, and the subject of this book, Justice Clarence Thomas. Justice Clarence Thomas um, may have supported the policies um, in, uh, in, in the case. In fact, he declined to join one paragraph of Justice O'Connor's dissenting opinion, in which she said if she were a legislator, she would not have voted for this law. That's the only paragraph that Justice Thomas declined to concur with, to sign on to, when he joined her opinion. So maybe he did agree with the policy, but that's not what drove his, opinion, his decision, and it didn't drive the decisions of the Chief Justice or of O'Connor. Their decision was driven by their principal commitment to federalism, as reflected in the written Constitution. And that's how we beat the spread as the book, as the chapter <laughs> ends. We got, instead of just getting one vote, we got three votes, because there were three justices who were willing to do that. And that's, I think, the legal realism of that case. It's a commitment to principles over facts. And sometimes, uh, and those, but those principles will vary depending on which justice you talk to.
3: Thank you. Scott? Well, thanks, John, and and congratulations, Judge, on a a really terrific uh, book. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Kelo case, uh, which many of you might be familiar with, uh, and then talk a little bit, too, about uh, Justice Thomas's uh, stirring dissent in that case. Uh, If you recall, uh, the Kelo case involved what we at the Institute for Justice call an abuse of eminent domain where eminent domain is not being used for a traditional public use as envisioned by the Constitution, a road, a bridge, a public building, but is instead used for private economic development. And this is, had increasingly become a real problem that had been going on in many states uh, throughout the 1980s and it really picked up steam in the 1990s and on in t- into the 2000s. And it was a classic case of big government teaming up with large development interests and uh, business interests in order to take the property of basically poor and working class people uh, throughout the country. And so We saw this as a gross violation of the Constitution and something that needed to be addressed not only to help the people that were being victimized by this, but to also restore important constitutional uh, principles. And so we took on a whole series of cases starting in the 1990s on up uh, into the 2000s and beyond that would try to limit government's abuse of the eminent domain power. The problem that we had is that the Supreme Court in a 1954 case called Berman v. Parker and a 1984 case called Hawaii Housing Authority v. Midkiff had recognized a very expansive definition of eminent domain, where eminent domain uh, was used not for public uses, but for the court interpreted to mean public purposes. And then eventually, and especially in some follow-up litigation, that meant public benefits. And all the government would have to do is to uh, show in some uh, even theoretical sense that a new development project would lead to higher taxes, more job growth, greater economic development. And that was a public benefit that justified the use of eminent domain, even though all these cases involved the taking of Uh, property from one private owner to hand it over to another private owner. That sounds like a private use, which would violate the Constitution. And so we litigated uh, these cases with the hope that one day the Supreme Court would take up this issue and to at least put some Outer limits on the use of eminent domain, because the court had never explicitly signed off on the use of eminent domain purely for economic development purposes. Uh, higher taxes, more job growth. You could make the argument it was implied in these broad decisions from the 1950s and 1980s, but they had never explicitly held that. So we said we at least want to get a limit on, this eminent, on the eminent domain power to exclude these pure private takings for economic development purposes. And that led us uh, to uh, one case that we litigated from the trial court in Connecticut, up to uh, the Connecticut Supreme Court, and then on up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was a classic case of eminent domain abuse. It was an old neighborhood in the Fort Trumbull section of New London, Connecticut, that um, had been there for over 100 years. It was a working class neighborhood that had a quite nice view of the water, uh, uh, the uh, the river that pours out into the Long Island Sound. And um, around that time, what New London thought was going to be their economic savior. The Pfizer Corporation agreed to build its new headquarters there. And part of the agreement with Pfizer to come to this neighborhood was to redevelop uh, the Fort Trumbull neighborhood that happened to be adjacent to uh, uh, the, uh, the new Pfizer facility. And so the New London City Council Authorized the use of eminent domain to take from uh, Suzette Kilo and her neighbors to give to private developers to enhance, uh, supposedly enhance the new the new Pfizer facility that was uh, that was going in, and so we litigated this case. We partially won at the trial court. We lost by one vote at the Connecticut Supreme Court. The uh, dissent in the Connecticut Supreme Court said maybe this is time for uh, for um, the court to look anew at uh, limits on eminent domain power, and we were thrilled when the court took up the case. And as probably many of you know, the court, in a five-to-four vote, ruled against Suzette Kilo and kept this uh, line of cases from Berman and Midkiff on up uh, to Kilo of a very expansive definition of, of eminent domain abuse. It's, you might know from um, uh, from reading about this and following this there was enormous backlash to this decision as well the public was outraged by this decision I think it's fair to say it's the perhaps the most universally despised Supreme Court decision certainly in modern history and uh, and we were able to get a lot of laws passed in, uh, in states to, uh, uh, to uh, curtail eminent domain abuse, and um, a number of state Supreme Courts stepped up and started to interpret their own state constitutions uh, in a way that was more protective of property owners. I'll mention three things that I thought was really important about Justice Thomas's uh, dissent in the opinion, because, as I mentioned, there were uh, four dissenting justices Uh, and Justice O'Connor wrote the the main dissent in the case that uh, all the the dissenting justices signed on to, and Justice Thomas wrote his own dissent. And he did some really interesting things that differed a bit from what um, Justice uh, O'Connor's dissent did, is of course he had a really robust um, defense of originalism that, interestingly, only got his vote on the court. He was willing to take an even more radical position than what the Institute for Justice was uh, claiming in this case, because we knew we had to get to five votes. Maybe the justices would not be willing to overturn decisions um, like Berman and, Ver- Berman and Midkiff that we thought was were wrongly decided, uh, but could at least be distinguished from what uh, the government was trying to do in, in the Kelo case. Justice Thomas said Berman and Midkiff were wrongly decided and had a really interesting and I think very persuasive historical analysis of what public use actually meant. It meant uh, public projects or uses like utilities and railroads where people had the right to use the um, the, the property even if there was some private involvement uh, with it. So I think it was really uh, an interesting and, as I said, persuasive defense of what the founders really meant by public use and was willing to give that to give that life. And the other two things I thought was really interesting that brings out some of the themes in, in the judge's book as well is that Justice Thomas started talking a little bit about kind of what was really going on in the Kelo case. Uh, and it's kind of real politique analysis where he put in this first paragraph of his dissent that um, the takings here were suspiciously agreeable to the Pfizer Corporation. And and Justice Stevens, who wrote the majority opinion, had this very civics book-like approach to what New London was doing, where they kept emphasizing the planning process that they went through, and they had hearings, and they listened to people, and and. And then at the end of this long process where they got all the approvals from the various government agencies, the development plan happened to be exactly what Pfizer wanted in the development plan from its origin. And he said, this is the way that these things typically go down and looked at it from that perspective, which I think was really important. Just, Justice O'Connor also uh, took that approach a bit in her uh, in her dissenting opinion. And then what Justice Thomas did as well Um, that uh, that Justice O'Connor did not do, but I thought was really important, and it drew upon some of the amicus briefs that we had, was to really talk about the sordid history of eminent domain abuse, and especially urban renewal projects in the 1950s and 1960s that destroyed, frankly, many inner city neighborhoods. Berman versus Parker, which was the subject of the 1950s decision I had mentioned, happened only a couple miles away from here in southwest Washington, D.C., where they took an entire neighborhood in order to do redevelopment projects. And as Justice Thomas noted in his dissent, 90% of that neighborhood was black. And this happened in city after city, where I grew up in Pittsburgh. The Hill District, which was a robust, thriving, largely black neighborhood was destroyed to make way for new development projects, including the the Civic Arena and others. And he was willing to call that out. And he even quoted um, James Baldwin's famous description of urban renewal as to use the phraseology of that time, Negro removal. Some of this was planned. Um, Some of this was deliberate. Others, it was just well-intentioned, but people not understanding how uh, what would the effect of urban renewal would be. And Justice Thomas called out people who would support this as you are not only signing off on something that's a really bad idea and contrary to the original intent of the Constitution, but it's also something that has this really terrible
4: historical uh, pedigree. Let me leave it at that.
1: Thanks.
4: Thank Alan? Thank you so much to John Heritage for having us over here. and Thank you so much to Judge Thapar for writing a wonderful book, which I encourage everyone to go out and uh, get and read. What I love about this book is that it, it really reflects um, what I love about the law, at least the kind of law that we practice here, which is it really, it's about people's personal stories and how they connect to the larger story of our country. And uh, perhaps no case that I've ever worked on has really brought that home as much as McDonald versus Chicago, where um, I got to work with uh, really a, a wonderful man, Otis McDonald, who, who felt the history. He understood his family's connection to the story that we were telling and to his individual rights today. And it was just a wonderful arc of, of history to bring that home into the Supreme Court and into a decision that made a difference for so many people. It was truly an honor. Um, Justice Thomas's decision in McDonald. Uh, was decisive in the sense that uh, we need five votes in the Supreme Court to prevail. To get five out of nine means you get to go home happier than the people who get the four votes. Um, but Justice Thomas uh, wrote by himself an opinion that uh, really demonstrates his fidelity to originalism, his, uh, his fidelity to his own uh, understanding of, um, uh, of what the Constitution means and to what is uh, the correct result, And in the end, I think uh, it's also uh, uh, a decision that everybody knows was correct. Uh, A lot, it's it's an example of Justice Thomas being able to put his name to something that is thought to be out there as one of those things that maybe we really can't say out loud, but we all know is true. Uh, So how did I get involved in this, and uh, uh, what role did Justice Thomas play in the outcome? Well, uh, in 2008, I had the honor of arguing Heller, uh, the Heller case, DC versus Heller, which established for the first time Uh, solidly at the Supreme Court level, that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. It's not connected to militia service or any other kind of government obligation. Um, The problem with Heller uh, is that while it was a fantastic result for for Mr. Heller and other people in DC and other federal territories, it did not apply to any other American uh, in uh, our relationships with the police that we see most often, our local police, our city police, our state police. I suppose it's possible for the FBI to come knocking on your door, but if you're driving your car or if you have some kind of problem, you call 911, you're generally going to be speaking with an agent of the state, not an agent of the federal government. And for much of our history, the Bill of Rights did not apply to any agents of the state. Uh, Originally, uh, when the Constitution was was framed and then the Bill of Rights shortly thereafter was was ratified in 1791, the thought was that uh, you really didn't have to worry so much about your local state governments, those governments were much closer to you than that far-off federal government in Washington. That's what you needed the Bill of Rights uh, protections against. Uh, in the wake of the Civil War, we realized that that was not a good arrangement. Um, the 13th Amendment ended slavery, uh, as a, as, as perhaps as a, as a technical matter, as a uh, legal relationship between people who are enslaved and people who uh, pretend to be uh, purport to be their owners, but it didn't really establish what the rights of these newly freed people might be, or for or for that matter, what the rights of of other people might be vis-à-vis the state governments. And the state governments in the South, in particular, um, had not been. Um, Respectful of people's rights prior to the war, they, they, they sure were not respectful of people's rights after the war, and the American people understood that something had to be happened uh, had had to be done, and the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified uh, to deal with this problem. The Fourteenth Amendment opens up by telling us that everyone who is born uh, in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state where they reside, and then those citizens have rights, and no state. Uh, shall make or enforce any law that shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, right? The very first clause of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment tells us that states cannot violate the privileges or immunities of of your of citizenship. That's what the war was fought over. Unfortunately, shortly after the war, um, uh, this theory was tested in the Supreme Court, and it was found to be uh, wanting, at least in the eyes of the court that existed in the 1870s. Uh, in a pair of cases, the Slaughterhouse cases and then uh, U.S. versus Cruikshank, the Supreme Court basically ratified a theory that the privileges of citizenship protected by the 14th Amendment are really privileges of national citizenship, privileges that come out of the existence of you being a U.S. citizen, not necessarily those rights that you have as as a person naturally, which are those rights protected by, say, the Bill of Rights. So, for example, uh, you have the right to visit the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in D.C. You have the right to the protection of the Navy on the high seas. Maybe you have the right to a passport, but do you have the right to speak? Do you have the right to to be free of searches and seizures? Is there any kind of uh, uh, bodily integrity that you may have uh, vis-a-vis the state when it imprisons you? Uh, What about the right to keep and bear arms? Well, those are um, more natural sounding rights, and those are not the rights that arise from the creation of the United States, and therefore you're out of luck. Um, Over time, that was understood to be uh, unworkable. And so the Supreme Court set about a process of case-by-case incorporating uh, a right uh, that's in the Bill of Rights and applying it uh, to the states via the Due Process Clause, the uh, theory that when the state um, is told not to deprive people of uh, life, liberty, property without due process of law, uh, there's a substantive aspect to due process, which means there are actually things that cannot be done to you. And some of those things are the things that are uh, in the Bill of Rights, uh, perhaps. Uh, This theory may have been uh, something that some legal scholars and some lawyers understood at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification, but it was not on the minds of the Americans who ratified the 14th Amendment. Instead, we had a very rich uh, history of contemporary media, of debates in the Congress and in state legislatures that reflected the fact that, hey, it's the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It's that thing that says states may not violate the privileges and immunities of citizenship, that uh, that will uh, transmit rights and real protections against uh, outrages against state government. Um, so um, we come to McDonald. We come to Heller. Uh, everyone knew that the uh, the next case after Heller would be against Chicago because Chicago had an identical handgun uh, prohibition uh, uh, to Washington D.C. and that's going to be where. The incorporation battle is going to be fought, but we had to decide how we're going to argue this thing. And the perhaps the easy thing to have done, or at least the easier thing to have done, would have been to try to argue the case, try to frame the case uh, only under the due process clause, and say, well, you know, the way that um, that the Supreme Court has incorporated over time, um, the takings clause, the First Amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment, and so on. Well, let's just apply that process to the Second Amendment. And we'll have arguments about whether or not this right is implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, whether it's really something that's you know, it, it's important enough that it has these right qualifications so that it, it qualifies like those other rights that have already been applied through the Due Process Clause is as an aspect of substantive due process. Um, the problem with that is that um, many of the people who are most enthusiastic, um, <coughs> perhaps about gun rights in the Second Amendment, uh, Justice Scalia, for example, who also famously on record of not believing in substantive due process, just as Scalia in particular had, had a history of cantankerous remarks decrying it as uh, argle-bargle and uh, you know, usurpation and all the rest of it, you know, in a sort of Scalia-esque way that he had. And, um, and would uh, Scalia and perhaps Justice Thomas or other people be willing to uh, hold their nose and, um, and go with due process incorporation because that's what precedent says to do, uh, knowing in the back of their mind that it's actually the right historical and originalist outcome because the history and the originalism supports application of the Second Amendment through the Privileged and Immunities Clause. And then what would, we, what would the liberals do? What would the progressives do, right? Um, there, there are many uh, people uh, who are on the more progressive side of, of things in this country who uh, don't mm, perhaps care for gun rights all that much, but they do care about the, uh, the idea that states have to follow national civil rights standards. And they want to uh, confirm that the process of applying uh, the Bill of Rights to the states is not just something that the Warren Court made up in the 60s, but it has real historical and textual pedigree. And might we get some of their votes? Might we get some of their support? Um, in any event, I uh, decided that we, uh, we couldn't really gamble. We had to, of course, present both arguments. And, of course, there's one other advantage that the PRI, the Privileges and Immunities argument has over the Due Process argument has, which is that it's correct, Okay. Uh, this is what the Constitution provides. This, there's no question that the historical record supports this. Um, so we uh, made both arguments, knowing that we had to appeal to the broadest array of, of potential votes. We had to perhaps cobble five votes together. And I also knew that while um, the privilege immunities argument is not one that the Supreme Court sees every day, uh, there's really nothing I could have done to, uh, uh, changed the justices' minds about substantive due process. All the justices were familiar with the theory. They all had their ideas about it. This is not, you know, we're, we're not going to be teaching them anything new. Uh, they probably have some some strong notions of, of what to do in a case like that. Uh, so the bulk of the briefing, not all of it, but, but a, a fair amount of briefing, was, uh, was spent on uh, talking about the privileges or immunities argument and the historical original record uh, that supports it or at least supports the result if someone's not willing to go along with actually voting that way. Uh, after all, Heller had been all about originalism, even just Stevens' dissent, uh, 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 was historically grounded. It was bad history, but it was history, uh, I suppose. Um, and so it would be really strange to argue MacDonald, uh, two years later, uh, only talking about precedent and nothing at all about what the framers of the 14th Amendment actually uh, believed and what language they used and how that language was understood by the public at the time. Um, the uh, it 's interesting there was a, uh, there was a companion case that had been filed by an, another group that focused only on the uh, on the due process arguments that case was not granted for uh, for cert ours was and it 's interesting uh, if you look at the record on cert what the city of Chicago did with these two petitions, uh, the city basically conceded that the court couldn 't avoid the, the case but um, uh, uh, but they said, just take the due process argument. Don't take the, the privileges and immunities argument. It's, it's old stuff. It's water on the bridge. It's crazy. And yet the court took the case that presented both arguments. And when the opinions came out, we could see why. Justice Thomas um, did not vote with the four other uh, conservative justices who uh, applied sort of a straightforward analysis under substantive due process, uh, but rather uh, he uh, supplied the fifth vote under a theory that um, the privileges or immunities clause, the original history of the Fourteenth Amendment, the original meaning of those words that were used by the framers, as understood by the ratifying public at the time, that is what commands the result. He at least agreed that the uh, that the uh, that the right was fundamental, which is sort of the magic language that you need to give that. Um, uh, Uh, to qualify under Substantive Due Process Incorporation. But he didn't uh, otherwise join uh, Justice Alito's opinion, uh, which was a plurality. And so for the first time in history, for the first time ever uh, since the ratification of the the 14th Amendment in 1868, we had an opinion at the Supreme Court that was consequential, that was decisive, and it turned the outcome of a very important case on the Privileged and Immunities Clause, and on the original history of the Fourteenth Amendment and of what happened during Reconstruction, and that was just absolutely fantastic. And I and I, I, I hope that that was the um, uh, the beginning uh, of something, or at least it sort of keeps the flame lit, so that in another case, in a future case, we would uh, be able to look again at at the Privileged Immunities Clause. And just as Thomas acknowledged, that uh, going this route um, requires us to answer. Uh, difficult questions about what else this language might mean. But as he also notes in his opinion, at least those are questions that the Constitution requires us uh, to confront. Mm-hmm. And um, I look forward to the court, perhaps uh, at a braver time in the future, uh, picking up where Justice Thomas has left off and continuing with that exploration of the 14th Amendment.
1: Thanks. Thank you, Alan. Uh, so Judge, I have a few questions for you related to the book, and then I have some other questions, to uh, gentlemen. <coughs> I, I promise you I will invite you into the discussion. Uh, so Judge, you actually begin the book with a very fascinating story about Justice Thomas walking out of a church, St. Joseph's, about a half a block away from here, uh, in 1998. I was wondering whether you could quickly sort of retell that story and, and say why you chose to highlight that story as the, at the beginning of your book.
2: So Justice Thomas was with a few of his clerks at Daily Mass, and he's walking out of St. Joseph's. And a homeless man comes running up to him and says, Justice, Justice, I've got a petition for you. And the clerks brace. And Nicole, who recounted the story for me, Nicole Garnett, says she, she instinctively wanted to put herself between herself and this man. And yet the justice waved them away and went and talked to the homeless man. And he was quite animated, Nicole observed. And the justice came back. And he said, you know, these are hard days for him. He just lost his mother. And he then, at the clerk's request, told them the story of the relationship between Justice Thomas and this homeless man. This homeless man had had falling out with his mother because he was addicted to drugs. Justice Thomas counseled him, and he counseled him to get off drugs, and he had done so, and he had reconciled with his mother, and she, after two years, I think it was about two years had passed, two years after they reconciled, and that was what it was all about. So why do I tell that story? Because... So few people, so few. I, when I researched this book and talked to these gentlemen and talked to others, what I discovered is how much Justice Thomas cares about the real people in each case. That's his character. Yet you never hear it. You hear the criticisms. But no one talks about how he's the one person. In each of these cases and every other case, he had a note. Towards the end of his opinion, race about the empathy. Even though, as Randy pointed out, he didn't join the paragraph saying I would have voted for this. Right? Everyone knows Justice Thomas believes in law and order. He doesn't. He might not think that that's the best policy, but A. His oath was more important than what he thought, and B. Cared. At the end, after he got through all the constitutional points and all the points that bound him, because he will rule, if the Constitution compels it, Justice Thomas is going to do it. And I say that in the introduction. But at the end of the day, he also had a note for them, in his opinion, about the empathy he felt. Why? Because Justice Thomas cares about people, and no one ever talks about it.
1: Well, so in fact, you you make the claim in your book that uh, Justice Thomas's commitment to originalism uh, and his love of ordinary people are connected. That's why you have the title of your book, The People's Justice. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So what is originalism at its core? It reflects the will of the American people. The American people gave up certain God-given rights to a limited federal government. Limited in that they couldn't do the things they did in Rach in Justice Thomas's mind. Limited in that they couldn't do the things in Kelo, in Justice Thomas's mind. And limited in that they couldn't take away your right to protect yourself. And I think it's really important that when you think about originalism and you think about the meaning of the document and you think about what the document is. And you understand it's a contract in some sense between the American people and their government. As Randy says, and I quote often, the Constitution is the document that governs those that govern us. In other words, government officials are the ones who take an oath to, quote, unquote, again to quote Randy, this Constitution, meaning the words and concepts in that document as they were understood, And Justice Thomas understands that better than anyone. And what happens when you stick to the original meaning? You often protect the little guy. You don't believe me? This book proves it. So when I went through my confirmation hearing, I was told by senators that originalism protects the big guy at the expense of the little guy. This book proves the opposite. They told me that it protects the corporations at the expense of the consumers. This book proves the opposite. And it's not the book that proves it. It's the cases in Justice Thomas's words.
1: So you, some of the cases that you cover in the book are are pretty famous, and some of them are somewhat more obscure. You obviously had a broad array of cases to choose from. How did you go about picking the cases you wanted to include in the book?
2: Yeah, as I note in the beginning... With an originalist, the one thing Justice Scalia used to say is that you're not being a good judge if you like all of your results, right? You're not adhering to your oath. And I think what Justice Thomas's critics do, and I say this front and center. Look, the introduction and conclusion are my own. I lay my thoughts on the table. You know when you read the introduction and conclusion that A, I'm an originalist, and B, I think Justice Thomas is an American here. There's no debate about that. I'm not going to hide from it. That's what I think. You want to bring the guns and discuss it with me? Bring them. But in between the stories of American people and their phenomenal lawyers trying to protect themselves, often from government, Kilo is a case that Justice Thomas said was a terrible case of government overreach. The punchline, Scott, I don't know if you told him the punchline, I went to New London, Connecticut. I took a picture of where Suzette Kilo's home once stood. It is a barren field. Eight years after Pfizer came in, they left. Who's for the corporation? I already forgot your question. I'm on my soapbox (laughs) about how you picked and chose your cases. But this is great. I picked the cases. I want to end the question so you can ask these gentlemen. I'm sorry. I've been on a soapbox too long. (laughs) I picked these cases because I thought they reflected a cross-section of Justice Thomas's jurisprudence. And they responded to the critiques I saw out there, like the ones I brought up, like that he's a traitor to his race, I mean, in the McDonald case, can I say one more thing, and then I'm going to stop? I've got, I've got a couple I promise. Of You take your time. In the McDonald case, he points out that Frederick Douglass said that the southern states, after the Civil War, were passing black coats. What were black coats? They were to take away black individuals' rights to bear arms. And Frederick Douglass pointed out, without the right to bear arms, we will never have equality. That is why the Privilege or Immunities Clause, as Justice Thomas so thoughtfully laid out, it was one of the reasons it was included in the 14th Amendment. And when you read Otis McDonald's story, when you read how many efforts he tried, he was a reluctant I mean, he, he wanted, look, he wasn't against guns, but he tried everything to protect his family. And he's got a remarkable story. It's recounted in the book. I think you'll enjoy it when you read it. Six different crimes his family suffered before he finally said is enough. When someone was found in the garage of his house under his car, he said, I can't call the police in time. Thanks to an eagle-eyed neighbor, that person was arrested before... They came in the house and harmed the family. He had three kids and a wife and himself. It was too late. If he was picking up the phone and calling 911, it was too late if someone's in your house. So Otis brought this case. The grandson of slaves and a descendant of slaves penned the opinion restoring his right. So that leads
1: perfectly into my next question, which is that it's well known uh, that Justice Thomas at one point uh, you know, described himself as a black power radical before he became a conservative. Some people think that this is evidence that he somehow sold out. Uh, on the other hand, some people think that this is perfectly, there's a, a consistent thread that connects his views as a radical to his now conservative position. So I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts about that.
2: I, I absolutely think it's consistent in the way he has in his own mind developed. And I think this is may surprise people in this book. He is a student of Frederick Douglass. You can't deny it because you'll see his words repeatedly in this book, quoted by Justice Thomas, in multiple chapters, in multiple cases. He seems to me to be a student of Thomas Sowell. And... Although he, I haven't seen him quote him, although I have not done the search and maybe someday I will, he seems to have a little Malcolm X in him. And in fact, one of his clerks wrote an article called Clarence X. (laughs) And so I think there's no denying it. I don't think, I've never asked him, I don't think he would deny it. He admires Frederick Douglass. He admires Thomas Sowell. And the voice is powerful. Look, he's an originalist first. There is no one that takes originalism more seriously than Clarence Thomas. But he is the opposite of a traitor to his race. He's a champion for his race. He talks about, in the Grutter chapter... The Soft Bigotry of Low Expectations. He firmly believes that, and think about this, Grutter involves education. The second chapter involves education. They're both titled after words he used quoting Frederick Douglass. He firmly believes that What happened to him in his life is available to everyone. Remember, if you haven't read My Grandfather's Son, I highly recommend it, because he talks about how poor he was growing up. His mom made $10 a week. She had to give up him and his brother to her father and their grandfather. And their grandfather taught him multiple important lessons, as the book recounts, but two that I recount in the book, one, well, three. Education means emancipation. It's why his grandfather saved up money and sent them to Catholic schools, something you see tied into chapter two about vouchers. Chapter three, do nothing with us, is the title, quoting Frederick Douglass, who Justice Thomas quotes there. And what he talked about there is if you hold the bar high for any race, that race will achieve it if they put their mind to it. And if you cheat us by lowering the bar for one race while keeping the bar high for another, you are harming us long term. It's a powerful voice that can't be denied. I challenge everyone here one more thing, and I hope you'll send it to me if you find it. Go look at the Kelo case. Go look at all the accounts of the Kelo case. Find me what Scott pointed out. Find me the article saying one justice took up the NAACP's invitation to return to the original meaning. One justice, Clarence Thomas. You won't find it anywhere.
1: So, gentlemen, I want to bring you into this discussion, and this is a perfect Segue, uh, which is several of the cases, obviously, uh, in the book, touch on questions of race, uh, and I wonder whether any of you have any thoughts about you know Justice Thomas's unique uh, views on racial issues and, and how he thinks that the law should address racial issues. Anybody want to jump in? Well, I I just think the judge just sort of summarized the answer to that question as best anybody could, uh, better than I could. Okay. What about abuse on the equal protection clause more broadly?
3: Well, my uh, I, I I think that well the Fourteenth Amendment in general, but fine. Yeah, I I, I will say a little bit about the Fourteenth Amendment because it's something that that Alan uh, touched on in, in his remarks where. Um, it, Justice Thomas has very interesting views on this. Um, he is willing to do something that IJ has long advocated, which is resurrect the privileges or immunities clause. And Allen took that approach, which was we were very happy about when he argued uh, McDonald, and um, and was interestingly enough attacked by Justice Scalia, too, who I think called you a a, a darling of the professoriate class for
2: bringing in (laughs) privileges or immunities in a typical I want to know all the professors advocating this, (laughs) because I'm going to have to find them. (laughs) That's right. I haven't seen it.
3: (laughs) Right. So, uh, So he's willing to go and say, listen, even though the privileges or immunities clause, like the Ninth Amendment, raises... Some difficult questions that we're going to have to grapple with as to what are those rights and 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 how they're going to be recognized by the court. But we have to do that if we're going to stay true to the original intent of the of the Constitution. The other thing too about the Fourteenth Amendment that I think is also an interesting contrast between Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia is Justice Thomas's advocacy, strong advocacy of parental rights in the Constitution as well. And it was an interesting case from 2000 called Troxell v. Granville, where Justice Scalia, who essentially really didn't believe in unenumerated rights, and he wrote a dissent in that case, basically uh, discounting and disregarding the, the Supreme Court's landmark decisions in Meyer versus Nebraska and Pierce versus Society of Sisters, recognizing the rights of parents, the rights of families... Justice Scalia's approach, of course, is, well, the Constitution doesn't say anything about parents or families. And so why are we making up, in his words, those rights? Justice Thomas is, is, is it accepts that and thinks it is very important to recognize these unenumerated rights under the 14th Amendment, whether it's under the Privileges or Immunities Clause or the Ninth Amendment or some other type of approach. He thinks that that is, is as robust of a, of a part of the Constitution as the enumerated rights in the, in, in the Bill of Rights.
2: And can, can I say one thing on that? Um, which is the chapter in the book about Brown v. Entertainment Merchants gets at that, parental rights. Justice Thomas writes a dissent about parental rights. It's about violent video games. And Justice Sclear writes the majority opinion. And that parental rights decision is fascinating and worth reading after you read the chapter, of course.
0: (laughs) the, 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 The punchline here is that for all the conservatives in the room, who are skeptical about the judicial protection of unenumerated rights, I ask you, where in the Constitution does it explicitly say that parents have a right to raise their own children? Uh, If you're going to limit constitutional protections only to the rights that are specifically enumerated, you're going to have to say there is no such fundamental right. And that's the exact matter over which Justice uh, Scalia and Justice Thomas disagreed in the Troxell case. Justice Scalia stuck with his view that this was a right that was recognized by the Declaration of Independence. It was even a right that was acknowledged by the Ninth Amendment, but he as a judge had no role whatsoever in protecting that right. That was Justice Scalia's position. Justice Thomas's position was not only was there such a right, but it should be protected with strict scrutiny the way all other
4: constitutional rights are. And if I would just add one more thing. I think Justice Thomas, we we live in a time that's very polarized. People assign themselves to various political tribes. I think Justice Thomas's decision uh, in McDonald highlighted also the fact that he's not afraid to uh, depart from maybe the social uh, conservative uh, uh, crowd. I'm sure that he may have uh, heard some criticism. I sure heard criticism from uh, my social conservative friends that if we open up the unenumerated rights uh, Pandora's box, what are we going to find? This will be used to uh, create all kinds of rights that don't actually exist um, and we, we all know the, the, the litany of, of, uh, of rights that are controversial in this respect, you know, perhaps abortion, same-sex marriage, all these things. Um, and Justice Thomas obviously didn't care about that. He was quite forthright in stating there are unenumerated rights. Uh, this language is expansive. Privileges or immunities is a, is a, is a term that, in, that, that encompasses more than just what's literally set out in the Bill of Rights. And we're going to answer those questions as they come and, and uh, be truthful to, be true to our history and be true to the text. Um, and uh, really, I think that's a, it's a wonderful thing that he was able to do that. Um, a, a true partisan would not have done that.
1: So I'm going to ask one more question, then I'm going to open it up to audience questions. The only thing I would ask is that you keep it very short and actually ask a question <laughs> rather than giving a speech. Uh, my last question is, it's a general one, what do you all see, now that Justice Thomas has been on the court for more than 30 years, what do you see as his, his legacy and his long-term
4: impact uh, on the court and on the law? Originalism. Original. He, he really, perhaps more so than Justice Scalia, really drives home the point that you, you must look to the original public meaning of, of the text, try to understand what the people actually believed that they were doing at the time. Uh, there's a modesty inherent in originalism. It's a, it's a modesty that some judges perhaps don't share, that um, uh, you are not empowered to substitute your own opinion and your own policy preferences for those of the people who, uh, who enacted the, the, the law, who ratified the Constitution. And that level of, of modesty, and uh, it's a modesty that also empowers the people because it, it really leaves to us the role of continuing to ratify, if we wish, additional constitutional text and to, uh, and to keep that constitution something that we control um, and not something that we sort of find out by accident uh, in, in particular cases has been changed for us. So I'm going to jump in and, and, uh, and steal
0: Scott's point, which is judicial engagement, <laughs> uh, which is something the Institute for Justice has been big on. Um, it follows from Alan's uh, discussion of Justice Thomas's contribution to originalism. At the beginning of the conservative legal movement, Um, there were basically two tenets of the conservative legal movement. Judicial restraint, the proper role of judges, and the original meaning of the text of the Constitution. How should the Constitution be interpreted? And in the early years, the restraint wing was really the dominant wing, and the originalism wing was really, really subordinate. Uh, That's when I got involved in the conservative legal movement. Um, And over the years, it's starting to swing. It has started to swing. The Troxell case is a perfect example of where Justice Scalia, originalist though he was, was more in the restraint camp. Um, and Justice Thomas was not. He was more in the engagement camp, which is the idea that it is the judge's responsibility to fo- follow the text of the Constitution, whether that means upholding a law or striking down a law. And we need to be prepared to strike down a law. And he was perfectly prepared to strike down a law or or actually to hold a law unconstitutional. Judges don't literally strike down laws. uh, But to hold uh, an act of uh, the legislature to be unconstitutional and not genuinely a law, he was prepared to do that when when the original meaning of the text of the Constitution uh, provided for that, above and beyond any other justice on the court up until this day, including at this day. Um, And so he is still at the forefront of this movement, um, uh, even beyond some of his younger uh, colleagues.
1: Let's go ahead. Let's open it up to questions. Here we are. We have one right here. (laughs) We have a microphone. Is there somebody? All right, yeah. Mia, come around.
0: Uh, Ken Masugi, Uh, thank you very much. My question, uh, in the New York gun case, Justice Thomas spoke about an inherent right of self-defense. I think his originalism would have been more powerful had he said the natural right of self-defense. But he was writing for the majority, which might have uh, restrained him. Uh, What are your thoughts?
1: I'm sure, Ken, by the way, when you were... Working for Justice Thomas, I'm sure you had many discussions along those
4: uh, along those lines. Anyway. I'm, not, I'm not sure there's a difference between natural and inherent. It's inherent, I guess, because it's natural. I'm, I'm not quite perceiving a, a, a difference between the two. Uh, they both take you to the same place, which is the idea that humans possess innately, inherently, naturally, some sphere of autonomy and some, some, some uh, sphere of action, and that includes self-defense. And the Second Amendment... Uh, reflects that, um, it it recognizes that right, and it gives us, it protects our our right to the means by which we exercise self-defense. When we first um, were putting the Heller case together, we did consider actually um, uh, making a Ninth Amendment argument or an enumerated right argument, a self-defense argument. Um, And at the time, there was some law evolving on that uh, here in the D.C. Circuit, there was a, a panel decision that came out in a case called Abigail Alliance, which uh, basically secured the right of terminal, uh, terminally ill patients to secure access to experimental drugs without FDA approval so that they wouldn't be forced to uh, be put into uh, you know trials and perhaps get a placebo if they could even get, get a chance at that. Uh, unfortunately, while we were thinking about this, the D.C. Circuit en banc overturned that decision, and we decided that the Second Amendment was enough to talk about uh, in Heller. So we, we didn't go that way. Um, I don't know if in, if in Bruin anybody presented specifically a uh, um, you know a Ninth Amendment sort of uh, natural rights, uh, unremitted right to self-defense separately, but the Second Amendment is there, and, and justice Thomas was was able to apply
0: it. In the historical materials, inherent and natural are used interchangeably and were from the founding all the way through until after the Fourteenth Amendment was enacted. so the terms were often used. As a synonymous with each other.
1: Other questions? Yeah, back there.
0: Oh, hi! Thank you for coming. Um, so, in the current court, um, there's been more talk about like history and tradition, and that is something that I think is more recent compared to older, more restrained versions of like textualism. Um, and I don't know if Justice Thomas has ever explicitly
1: used those terms, but. Do you guys see that the sort of history and tradition emphasis is sort of um, Thomas-esque originalism kind of taking
0: over, becoming more popular? Do you see it as something that we can kind of trace to him? Um, And is it sort of an articulation of a difference between originalism and textualism, or is it something else that's kind of being added in there?
1: I certainly use it in the Bruin case, which is the
0: case that Ken was just talking about. I have an article on this coming out in the Northwestern Law Review, and I just want to say... It's really complicated. Um, <laughs> because history and
2: tradition- Your article or the text?
0: <laughs> Fortunately, the concept of the, the relationship between history and tradition and originalism is very complicated because history and tradition can play a variety of roles um, in legal determinations that may, may or may not have anything to do with the original meaning of the text. So history and tradition can provide evidence of what the original meaning of the text is, which is the appropriate use of history um, uh, in order to do, what, do originalism. But history can also pro- history and tradition can also provide a substitute for original meaning, as it does in the substantive due process area, which was basically the, uh, the method that Justice Alito used in the Dobbs case by sa- asking whether a right to abortion was deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history, um, unless that is somehow rooted in the text of the Constitution, which Justice Alito declined to attempt to do, um, that is a free-floating standard that actually traces to the Glucksberg case, the assisted suicide case, that pr- provides an alternative uh, to originalism. Uh, and sometimes, uh, well, I'll just let it go with that. Um, uh, it's complicated, um, and we need to be careful and, and because it's complicated, we need to be very careful that every time we see history and tradition being used does not make its use originalist. That is the most important takeaway. You have to be very careful.
5: Over here, Chuck. Thank you, uh, John. Uh, Chuck Cooper, uh, first of all, thank you very much for this uh, really wonderful tribute in, in your book and on this panel to Justice Thomas. Uh, but I want to key off of Allen's point about Justice Thomas's legacy being really his disciplined honesty in his fidelity to originalism and to original meaning and his uh, obvious uh, uh, rigidity, if you will, in subordinating his own views and insisting on subordinating, no matter how passionately, to his beliefs about what the meaning of the Constitution is. I think the best or a a very good example of that is a view that even that the Constitution also trumps previous decisions interpreting the Constitution. And I'm wondering, uh, Judge Thapar and uh, other uh, panelists here, thoughts on his views regarding stare decisis. He is certainly not a fair-weather originalist when it comes to stare decisis. And do you address that at all, uh, Judge Thapar, in your book?
2: I don't, but it's pretty clear from his jurisprudence, as you mentioned, that he's not To quote Justice Scalia, a faint-hearted originalist, um, there's there's a fun story that Justice Scalia used to tell where he'd say, you know, I love Clarence, but I'm not like Clarence. He's nuts. (laughs) He would overturn anything if it's inconsistent with the original meaning of the Constitution. And that is, he, he is so faithful to the original meaning that I don't think there's ever that I know have been another justice like him. And so I I think that he views the Constitution
0: as supreme. The relationship between stare decisis or precedent and original meaning is a very fraught one um, because most judges Uh, especially inferior court judges, believe in stare decisis. They need to because they have to follow the dictates of the higher court, the courts that are higher than they are. So there needs to be a stare decisis doctrine for them. That's called vertical stare decisis. With respect to horizontal stare decisis, um, I share the view uh, that the original meaning of the Constitution should come first and the the decisions, uh, the original meaning of previous court decisions should come second. But there is a problem with figuring out exactly when that has happened. And we need to have a standard as to what level of proof we require um, before we're prepared to say that a previous decision of the court is conflict with the original meaning of the text of the Constitution. And Justice Thomas has offered us a standard If an opinion, if a previous decision is demonstrably erroneous, I think is the phrase. And if it isn't that phrase, someone can supply me with what the actual phrase is. Um, If it's demonstrably erroneous, uh, only under those circumstances should the court act to correct their precedent. Um, So, A, the first thing is we need to have a theory of stare decisis and how it relates to originalism. B, I think the most promising uh, candidate... For such a theory is the one that Justice Thomas is being is developing, uh, and we need to pay more attention to his view and seeing how we can extend that view and uh, and um, and so that the other justices are more willing um, to set aside stare decisis when these uh, previous decisions are demonstrably erroneous.
2: And there's there's a lot of debate about this, as Randy referenced, but the one thing that isn't debatable is vertical stare decisis. I think all originalists agree because they called us inferior courts, and that means we have a superior court, and the superior court's pretty clearly the Supreme Court. I mean, that's because we have a Supreme Court clause. The Supreme
0: Court clause in the Constitution doesn't just give the title of the court, it gives the function of the court, and it contrasts that court, the Supreme Court, with inferior courts that answer to it. State Supreme Court justices are in a different situation, a slightly different situation. They are not really lower courts in that sense. But nevertheless, it's the Constitution that provides the need for some notion of stare decisis that's vertical,
3: that goes up and down. I think some best examples of that is what, Thomas did with um, just Thomas did with uh, Berman uh, in the Midkiff decisions, which I I think was much more willing to do that, even though they were even then over fifty years old, because they were completely. Historically unmoored uh, from uh, from the the text the the meaning of the Fifth Amendment, and if you read the Berman decision, for instance, it is written in this sweeping grand language of you know this is going to be an opportunity for cities to be uh, beautiful as well as clean and and you know it, it, looking back at this, of course, it was a um, it was an utter disaster, but it was this kind of post-war confidence and city planners to remake this, but again, wasn't based at all upon the The text and and, and meaning of the the Fifth Amendment. So I think he felt even more confident in that way to say, "Well, I'm going to look at what the founders really meant by public use, and if that means rejecting 50 plus year old precedent, so be it." John, believe we have time for one more? May I make a comment?
1: And yeah, quickly, because I got one more question. I want to give it to this woman right in front of you. Um Janice Volk Grenadier, I'm a
0: founder of judicialpedia.com, which gives victims of the courts a voice. Um, the grand jury, Justice Scalia and Justice Powell, codified that it was the fourth arm of government and that we the people had the right to go into the grand jury to redress it for um public corruption and to set our own special grand juries. We are blocked by the judges.
1: Do you have a question about yes, Justice Thomas? I
0: do. What was Justice Thomas's view? on the grand jury, and if we should, as the people, be allowed to redress public corruption?
3: I don't know. Well,
0: I've been in front. I, I have actually taken cases to a grand jury, so I actually know what it feels like to be in the grand jury yeah, room with, a, with, a, with, the, with the grand jury. And uh, it's really a quite remarkable um, institution because uh, as opposed to petty jurors who come and go, they they sit usually for a month at a time, um, and you get to go in there, and you have to make your case in front of them. Uh, And really what has happened since the founding until today is the complete uh, uh, elimination for all practical purposes of the grand jury uh, as a check on government power. Uh, Most uh, criminal prosecutions at the state level proceed by way of information, not indictment. Which means uh, essentially a judge has to find probable cause rather than the grand jury has to find probable cause. And we all know that grand juries can be very, very tightly controlled by prosecutors, uh, thereby making them an arm of the prosecutors rather than an independent body itself. Uh, The Constitution basically requires a grand jury, but the Supreme Court, uh, in criminal cases, but the Supreme Court has done away with that requirement. That is part of what I've called the lost Constitution Uh, that needs to be revived. Uh, The function of the grand jury needs to be revived, Uh, even though the rules that govern the grand jury could be changed in such a way as to make them more effective. We really need to take the grand jury more seriously. Fortunately, it hasn't been abolished yet, and so there really are grand juries whose powers could be revived, uh, uh, but that's going to require a lot of uh, legislative reform. It's not something that the courts can do other than to get out of the way um, and stop misconstruing what the Constitution says about your right uh, to be
1: tried by pursuant to an indictment by a grand jury. Well, my apologies to those of you who had questions that we did not get to. You will still, we'll still have an opportunity uh, to ask Judge Par because his book is fabulous. As I mentioned, we have copies for sale uh, outside of here, which he will be happy to sign. And please take a moment and thank our panelists for being here.